You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Omaha native John Jabalisco is known around town as a theater guy. But he is foremost a family man. He has been married to his wife, Mary, who is an artist, for 37 years. They met in 1977 in their high school theater department. John attended the University of Nebraska at Omaha, all the while having a foot in the stage door at the Omaha Community Playhouse. The sound artist, whose full title is Master Electrician slash Resident Sound Designer, stumbled into the Playhouse in 1977 as a 15-year-old determined on landing a small role in the OCP's production of Cabaret. As John states, he couldn't sing, he couldn't dance, he didn't bring his own music. So he was gently directed to the tech table and instead started volunteering backstage in building sets. Four decades later, audiences benefit from the fact that John was unprepared for his big audition. Instead of being in the spotlight center stage, he now creates backstage magic in a subtler but no less vital leading role at America's largest community theater. After 10 years of volunteering in various capacities, John took a full-time lighting and sound job with the Omaha Community Playhouse and has been on staff since 1988. John Jibalisco, welcome to the Green Room. First of all, thank you so much for allowing me into your inner sanctum. We are sitting here on this cold and blustery early March afternoon in the sound booth here at the Omaha Community Playhouse, my first remote. So thank you for allowing me into your home and for letting me use your equipment and all of those good things. Let's start off with a little background, as I do with all of my guests. You are originally from Omaha, correct? Uh, Yes. So I, I was born in Omaha, Nebraska. My mom and dad, Fred and Lucille Jabalisco, both grew up in Omaha, children of Sicilian immigrants. And they both, my dad was a, a, a steel worker his whole life. Uh, he worked in a foundry down uh, on Saddle Creek at Omaha Steelworks. And uh, my mom was a homemaker. And they both had, they both had talent. They both had artistic talent. My dad was a real gifted sketch artist and cartoonist. And my mom plays piano quite well, has a lovely singing voice. And I, I got, I got neither of those gifts. I, I really don't play instruments and, and I can't sketch to save my life. What I did end up with was the gift of curiosity, which I equate to creativity. And with that n- never ending curiosity, uh, that I think is, was the beginning of, of my career in the arts. Even though your dad didn't pursue the artistry for a career, did he still, even after when he was working in the foundry and stuff, did he, did he continue to sketch or did he eventually give that up? You know, he did, he did continue to sketch his whole life. 
if it, it, it he did lots of uh, satirical cartoons um, when he was overseas, and he also continued to doodle on anything at our breakfast table. But as far as a career in the arts, no one in in my family ever imagined that one could make a living in the arts, and that was maybe a sign of the times. But right. I, I still see that I still see that today. But no, he did not. He did not pursue, you know, his passion for photography or sketching because it was just something you did. You didn't do. You, you know, you needed to go out and and get a real job and uh, make a living for your family. And he did that. Do you have any brothers and sisters? I, I do have uh, two brothers and a sister. My oldest brother, Gary. Uh, my middle sibling is Janine, and beneath Janine would be. Fred Jr. and then I was the baby of the family. And my sister did a lot of uh, high school uh, productions at Ryan High School, which was really a mecca for theater arts at that time in the late 60s, early 70s. My brother Gary dabbled in uh, in, in bands and in music when he was a teenager. My brother Fred uh, was always a little bit uh, on the other side. He, he was very industrious and just carved his own path in the world and, and, and did not include the art. As for myself, I would say, you know, things started rolling for me at a really young age. I would always at family gatherings, jump up on the fireplace hearth with an ice cream scoop as a microphone and lip sync Beatle tunes uh, for the family. I was the uh, I was the family entertainment for all the uh, holiday gatherings. And in fact, in grade school, I read for the part of the king in one of the school plays at Holy Cross Catholic School. And I did get the part. And the only problem was, is that I never showed up for any of the rehearsals and was uh, removed from the production. Now, if you, if you know how oppressive Catholic schools can be. Yeah, I went to Catholic school. <laughs> you know, when, when the bell rang at the end of the day, I was a vapor trail out the door and <laughs> heading west one mile home to my home in Exarbon at that time. And just, the last thing on my mind was going down to the gym to rehearse a play. Uh, and I, and every day I would promise, oh, of course I'm going to be there. I want to, you know, I don't, you know, I want to do the part, but every day it was the same thing out the door and straight on home. So then moving on, you know, I, I just told this story at the board meeting. So I'm, I think I can get the timing right on it. In ninth grade, a friend of mine, Greg Combs and I were hanging out over the summer and friends of his parents including his parents, uh, were on their way to a big bridge tournament here in Omaha. And the couple that they were playing with gave Greg and I two tickets to production at the Omaha Community Playhouse. And I had never heard of the Omaha Community Playhouse. And so we, you know, we, we accepted the tickets and I ran home to talk to my mom about it. The, the title of the play was No Sex, Please, We're British. So I thought, you know, this is never going to fly. But she was more concerned about how are we going to get across Dodge Street safely than than the title of the play. And so we were given permission. We walked from our home, uh, 56th and uh, William area in Exarbon through Elmwood Park and across the footbridge there uh, near Happy Hollow and then up the north side of Dodge Street to the playhouse. And, you know, when we when we got to the playhouse, that was the beginning of being bitten by the dog that went to see the play. And I remember the box office. I remember the awning over the driveway. I remember the beautiful terrazzo polished floors and the the light fixture uh, that was in the old Scott lobby and the mirrored surfaces. 
And then going into the theater and seeing the acoustical square tiles of the house ceiling and the square Fresnel lenses and the house lights. And when the curtain went up, that sealed the deal for me. The lights came on. I was staring at the lights. I, I was fascinated by the scenery. This flat or this apartment that was the setting had wall-to-wall shag carpet, beautiful sofa, a kitchen with a, uh, with a roll-up barn-type door that would separate the kitchen from the rest of the flat, which later became, uh, you know, a sight gag for the show. And, and for me, it was certainly a much nicer space than was my actual home, a uh, split level, uh, beautiful, beautiful apartment. And that really was an amazing experience for me that I'll never forget. And from that, we went to an open house a little bit later at the Playhouse for classes. And I signed up for every imaginable class at the Playhouse. And then later, my mom received a phone call from then Carolyn Rutherford, who was the head of the education department and ran the Nebraska Theater Caravan and was looking for payment for all the classes. And my mom, you know, uh, politely declined and said, we, you know, we can't afford to send John to acting classes. Now, my family wasn't really poor. We just never had any money. And and there's a big difference, uh, at least in my mind. And so uh, then a couple of days later, then Carolyn called back and said, you know what, we, we do have some money where we can bring John in for one class. And then that, that one class led to um, the teacher, I believe it was Marcy Smith of the caravan, said, you know, everyone should go try out for cabaret. And there's, uh, for you guys, there's uh, sailor parts, uh, young sailor parts that maybe, you know, you, sh- you would be interested in. So we showed up to the audition. Uh, Greg and I showed up and uh, Joanne Katie was manning the check-in table. And she said, what will you be singing? And I, I had no idea what she was talking about. She said, well, you need, you know, usually you bring a piece of music and, and you would sing a song. And well, I, I don't, I don't really have anything prepared. Then her suggestion was maybe you should go see our technical director, Steve Wielden, who's manning a table right there in the shop. And he will sign you up for a backstage position. And that was that is how I got started backstage and the rest is history. My first show was Cabaret and I was so distracted by the beautiful chorus girls, the Kit Kat girls, that I was an absolute disaster. And the stage manager, Jolene Farrell, I'll never forget, had a chair right behind her desk and that is where she made me sit and I was not allowed to get up for the entire show unless I was doing a cue or getting her coffee from the green room coffee machine. And then I went on to UNO and uh, was in the theater department for a good deal of uh, of the time. And a great professor by the name of Keith Setterholm. And he was teaching me drafting for the theater. And I was just uh, so engaged and so excited. And for then for whatever reason, he left UNO. And in fact, the chair of the department at that time, I think had falsified some of his documents to get hired, and then he was immediately let go. So the department was in a uh, quite a bit of turmoil. So now I was a little bit uppity and and uh, kind of like, well, I can do better than this. And so I went into art history and 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 art at UNO for a while, and then I switched into drafting, engineering, design, and loved that, but couldn't pass the math courses. It was it was tragic. I mean just tragic and and i went back to the dean and he's like look this is it you know i don't want to see you 
for one more switch. This is it. You know, you have to stay. And, <laughs> and so that was it. I dropped out. I never finished at UNO. And I, I sometimes regret that. And then oftentimes I've been watching my son and my daughter and now my wife, who's in a master's program doing their work. And I thought, I'm looking at this and I'm like, any romantic idea I had of ever going back to school and finishing is over. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are just killing themselves. Yes. And I, I just don't want to work that hard. I just don't have that in me now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Well, and with everything that you do at the Playhouse, you probably don't have a lot of time. No, there, I mean, yeah, this, it would have to. Right. You'd have to probably take a leave. It would have to be a different job or take a leave. Right. So you've been volunteering at the Playhouse. When did we start to transition to working with sound? Right. Well, as a volunteer, I did um, lights and sound for Tom Truax, who just retired from the Guthrie in Minneapolis, and I did lighting with Jim Othus. So when you say you did lighting, you learned under them as far as like learning how the instruments work, or were you an assistant for them? I, I just... We we would come in in the evenings. Uh, there was call work calls every evening, and we just did whatever it took to get the show ready with these guys. Okay. And and then and then we would crew. We would run lights or run sound in the booth for them during the run. And the okay. runs were back then like three three weekends maybe. And it was like you know if you're full time, you know if it was full time or you didn't get the job. That's just basically. That was it. Yes. Yeah. And so it was a big commitment even back then. Now everybody is half time. You know, you just have an alternate and you switch back and forth. But the runs are longer too. And then in 88, married and a two-year-old. I had a decent job with benefits and a car. (laughs) And I just, I was miserable in this job so you were working outside of theater had a job all of that and we're still just volunteering at the time at the playhouse Mm -hmm. and um so i thought i can't take this anymore and i loved the man that i was working for he he was fantastic to me and so it was really hard to let that go and tell him i I got to find something else. You know, he was, when I told him, he was so cool about it. And I went around and interviewed, oh, two or three guys. I had a list of 10 people and I'd set up interviews with them. And one of them was Jim Othus. And I I just came here and and I just said, I just want to talk to you about your job. Tell me about your job. What What is your day like? What's it like to come in here and create shows every day? Do you like it? And so we had this little interview. It wasn't a, it wasn't a job interview for me. And then I talked to a few other guys in different, completely different industries, you know, nothing to do with uh, what I was doing and nothing to do with theater. And then a call came and it was Jim Othus. And he's like, you know, you've got quite a bit of experience in lighting and sound. Uh, we just had a position open up in lighting as the master electrician. Would you be interested in interviewing for it? So I, did, I, I interviewed for it and I got the job. And then I went, had to go home and say, 
well, we don't have a car anymore. And <laughs> we do have insurance, but we, you know, uh, but I don't make as much, you know, I'm not going to be making nearly what I was making at the other job. Are you cool with this? And she was like, absolutely go for it. You know, so. Uh, so tell me what a master electrician does. Well, master electrician at the Omaha Playhouse is getting all the designs from the lighting designer. And sometimes the scenic designer will add lighting elements to his scenic design and figuring out how you're going to hang the lights, get the rental packages pulled together, order any resources that you need to do that show and get them here on time uh, and coordinate help to, to get the job done. And then focus the focus the light plot and then help train personnel during tech week in lighting. And so does the Omaha community playhouse, do you have a standard house plot that you would have? Or do you guys bring all your lights down after every show and rehang on the Hux main stage? Uh, that's the big proscenium house. There is a few pipes in the front of house that we keep the same for every show. We call that the front of house house hang, right? And then every other position, and there's several, all come down after the show. All the weight gets pulled, all the lights come off, everything gets pushed off to the side or put away, and then all goes back up in a different configuration for the next show. That's a lot because if anybody who's anybody who comes to see those shows, I mean, they're probably at least a hundred lights yeah. that that you would probably have to that you pull and uh, right so you know christmas carols somewhere in the neighborhood of 185 fixtures sure. you know um, um what's the show that's on main stage that i just opened bridges of madison bridges county of- bridges of madison county almost every every lighting fixture in the rig was used everything that we have was in that rig there's just a couple of spares hanging around now in in the in the small theater the drew which is right outside these windows the, there's five catwalks overhead that you can just walk around on and try not to hit your head on anything. Um, but you, know, you just, there's no ladders. There's no, there's rarely a lift involved. So you just kind of walk around on the catwalk system and hang lights and it's 75 to a hundred fixtures per show. And so that's really great. The older I get, the more I appreciate the Howard Drew Theater. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Do you have interns that help you hang or do you and focus or do you do the majority of that yourself? Well, I have always I always have a couple of apprentices on hand. And so the way it works is is that I'll have a senior apprentice that's with me every day and that's their their sole focus in the apprenticeship program is, is to be the lighting and sound in, intern or slash apprentice. And then there's usually a couple of juniors in rotation that work under that person. And so we have that, which is really handy. Now, the juniors are really, I don't want to say they're not a lot of help because they are great help. It's just that they they are like, move that mountain of stuff from there to there. Then they move the mountain of stuff. You know, that's they're fantastic at that. And then I oversee that that crew. And then there's another guy who jobs into the playhouse. His name is Will Miller. And he's on track to be a teacher somewhere, someplace. But he works here part-time, I guess. And works a lot of hours, really. He works staff on duty. So he runs shows at night as well. And he supervises the volunteer crews. But on the big, big shows, they swing him out of the scene shop into my department. And that's glorious for me because then I have a trained professional alongside me 
to get things done so I can focus on my sound job and he'll kind of handle the lighting stuff for me. And just this season, he's gotten far enough along to where he's doing a lot of the light focus for me too, which is great. <laughs> so you can concentrate on sound. So you start out then, so you were, so you were hired on at the playhouse as the master electrician. And then when did you start to include sound design and sound duties into right. your yeah. profile? When I when I first started here in eighty eight, it was more like sound janitor, you know, you you did <laughs> <laughs> you did a couple of cleanup things for the shows. There wasn't any mi wireless microphones to speak of at that point. Floor mics I don't even really think had come on to the apron boundary mics hadn't really come on to the scene yet and you know even splicing together some phone rings was a big deal because we had two quarter inch four track reel-to-reel -reel tapes to play back sound effects and so uh, you know you would record it and then you would cut it and you would splice leader tape between the cues and it was days of work and I can't do it now but I was really fast at cutting and splicing magnetic tape back then so i will interrupt you so at that point any sound cues that were in the show you recorded them in the field you recorded them in the field or you found bbc 33 and a third albums and you put it on the turntable and you transferred it onto quarter inch tape yeah it's crazy <laughs> it was crazy old school <laughs> yeah and so you can imagine like when cds were i was like Oh, CDs. The only problem with CDs was, were, was that you couldn't stop the CD player. Right. You know, it would roll right into the next track. Yep. But still. Night uh, and day. Yeah, night and day. And then we advance even further than that when you get into computers. Yeah. And now all of a sudden. Yeah. So when did the transition from CD, we'll say, uh -huh. to computers when when did that happen here at the playhouse i'm not really good on years but it was probably in the 90s i would imagine and it was a it was a slow transition because i remember i would go to telepro sight and sound and they would charge me half the going rate because they took pity on me to have sessions and and to do vo the voiceover work would happen there and the creating of effects would happen there and for the engineer dave schellenberg he was happy to do it because you know it was something completely different than what he did every day eight hours a day so he he really enjoyed it too the creative process of helping me out and then he would transfer it to a cd and then i would bring it back to the playhouse and then that non-linear editing which is what you use to make your podcast I learned how to do that by just looking over his shoulder and watching him do it and him kind of training me along the way. And then it's at a certain point, we found some used computer parts and he built me a nonlinear editing computer and I brought it back here and started editing and and still was using their facility, but I could at least bring those cues back here and manipulate them a little bit during tech week to make them a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, maybe loop it, do what you know. And so at that point, because I know, and and I wouldn't come anywhere close to calling myself a sound designer, but I know at that point there are things out there like sound effects uh, libraries that you could get from like BBC or yeah. some of these other places that cost an absolute fortune. <laughs> they did. They did. <laughs> so do you at this point then, do you still do a lot of 
for lack of a better term, Foley work? Do you still do a lot of stuff in the field? Oh, yeah, tons. You know, there's lots of sound effect libraries online that you can go and you can uh, cherry pick a sound effect off a library here and there and pay $3.50 for a motorcycle or, you know, whatever. But there's a lot of times when, as you know, a show can get pretty specific and and you just want to create your own effect that'll work perfectly for what you need. So, yeah, I've been out on the back loading dock with chainsaws, <laughs> you know, and out in the parking lot recording cars and horns and car doors and door slams. And we just made sound effects for Of Mice and Men, which was the um, the horseshoe game that was going on, you know. Yes. Um, the, the guy is a nut. You could read the stage directions like we hear a clang and then we hear the guys hooting and hollering, you know. It's like, come on, we, we get it. There's a, there's a horseshoe game going on right. out there. Give me a break. But it's this whole horseshoe scene that goes on underneath the scene on stage. So there's an entirely different scene happening behind the walls of the bunkhouse in in form of this, uh, all the guys out there having this rousing game of horseshoes. And so these guy had to bring them all up here and gather them around microphones and, and gather. So you brought the cast up. Yeah. You know, reactions, you know, ding, ringer. Yeah, you know, they would all react to it, right? Or, oh, disappointment. And so we would we would gather as many of those reactions as we could. And then just, you know, we would just grab some metal pipes out of the shop and made some some horseshoe clangs and some leaners and some misses and just tossing things on the carpet. And, and hopefully it's not too distracting. But I saw the show and I thought, it was, I, you know, I thought it was perfect. I, I, yeah, I no, I thought it was great. And that's fun because then you get to experience the you get to expand your creativity as well to to yeah. kind of fill that niche with uh yeah the sound the sound part is uh super uh, a super creative outlet for me because you know, i've gotten pretty good at hanging lights you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm closing in on 400 productions here i like sound uh doing sound it does help me out uh get gets me off the shop floor and uh, i get to do some creative work up here what is a typical uh, a typical day like for you? Well, I I roll in what I call soft nine o'clock. <laughs> so, and then it's usually uh, we gather down in the scene shop as a group and we drink coffee. And there is a lot of BSing that happens in that time. But there's also a lot of, you know, hey, can you stop by my office this afternoon and look at this paperwork? I've got some lights going in these flats and I need you to tell me, you know, what materials to use and and uh, how large the sockets are going to be. And so it's like a little tiny mini, real super casual production meeting in the morning. And then it's just off to the races on whatever the needs are for that day. And we're always in production for some show around here. Right now, both shows are open. So I have two shows open. And so I'm, I'm putting together, like today, I was putting together microphones and things that will be needed for the season kickoff that's going to happen while I'm on vacation in March. <laughs> and so I have to get all that ready. And uh, there's show notes every morning. We get a report every morning, an email on both shows. that tells, you know, who was late, who got sick, um, you know, what light cue was missed. And today was doing some investigation on lighting and emailing the light designer who is an Omaha kid, but she lives in Boston now. So yeah, 
communicating back and forth on what to do with this missing cue that the stage manager was calling, but it really isn't in the light board. Yes. Things of that nature. And then everybody loves meetings, right? Yes. I, I'll just say it. I hate meetings <laughs> and I'll do anything I can to get out of a meeting, but they, of course they're necessary. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting art form where at least here at the playhouse, cause I have not worked anywhere else. So, well, I've worked a few other little places here and there down in Lincoln, but it's, it's like, I do my thing and costumes does their thing. And Othus does his thing and the scene shops doing theirs and props is doing theirs. And it all comes together on Sunday and somehow it all fits together like a giant puzzle and it works. I still don't get how that happens through these meetings that we have. <laughs> the theater gods. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I, I really, that's the fascinating thing to me about this whole process is like on Sunday, it's like, is that work for you? Is this going to work? Right. I mean, we talked about it. We planned it. We've decided what we're going to do. We've executed it, which is super scary. Does it work? You know, you don't know if it's going to even work. It's, it's insane, really. But it, it somehow it works. And when it doesn't, you know, everybody's pretty cool. It's like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take two steps to the left and punt. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the process of working. And, and I don't necessarily mean, and, and I'll say Tim, because Tim was the composer of the music for Of Mice and Men. The Playhouse seems to be now moving a little bit more toward utilizing local people for for music for their productions, mm -hmm. which I think is amazing. So can you talk to me a little bit about what it's like collaborating with a local composer on right. on music for a show? Right. Well, first of all, no one likes Tim Bellier. Well. You know, he's handsome. Right. He's talented. Yeah. He's a musician. He can it's, sing beautifully. I know. It's it. like, come on. On. I know. Is that fair? It's not. How did he get? How did he get all that? I, was he was he like a quarterback in high school too? <laughs> well, he got the high school. You know, he got the high school sweetheart, right? Oh, oh they my got God. married. Super so, talented yeah. couple. They're like the super talent power couple. I know it. Unbelievable. Well, with Tim. Uh, well, we we started using uh, local composers uh, four years ago, I think, and it, it just sort of sprang out of you know. We, we really shouldn't we really shouldn't be using other people's music to score our shows. I can't I, I tried and tried and tried. I could not figure out a way to do it legally. And there's no way. Believe me, I've spent so much time trying to figure out to contact, you know, well, that's that's mechanical rights. And that's right. the publisher. You got to talk to the so-and-so and he's the composer and, and it's, impo it's impossible. There's no way to do the right thing. Right. And, and, and I'll pause for a second because, you know, I've, I wrote a show that was actually around a song and try and trying to figure out, is it my responsibility mm -hmm. to contact the person who wrote the music to say, can I use this song in my show or mm -hmm. is it up to the theater to get the right, you know, and I could never even get a straight answer as far as if I put, if I referenced a song in a show, whose responsibility it was, mm -hmm. was it mine or right. was it the theater that put it on? So yeah. I, so I get it. <laughs> Typically it's the, it's on the venue. Right. And, and so I, I tried a few more times, even after I knew it was futile and still just was running into brick walls. And so it's like, our shows turn out better when we use 
composers anyway. So let's just figure out how to do this. It started out as a big experiment to see if we could do it. I didn't know how to work with a composer. I don't speak their language. I, you know, the conversations I had with Tim were comical. And I'm like, what do you mean by progression and this chord? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know. So he's very patient with me. So we started and we started with uh, a drummer out of Abogas's pit, Vince. And he, he did a great job. And then we started kind of expanding from there, including some other people. And Vince is doing a show uh, with Amy Lane. Uh, coming up in the Drew. And so I think we have two, three, four guys we, we've gone to. Uh, is it Shannon? Shannon Smay. Smay did She Kills Monsters. Yep. Great stuff. Really great stuff. So me working with those guys is, as you, as you say, well, why are we telling the story? That guy, you know, you try to get in that guy's, the composer's head. He tries to get in the director's head, right? And then when the answer is yes, let's go this direction, they go to work and then they can, they, they bring, they bring stuff back to the director, not to me. But if the director ain't happy, nobody's happy. So take your stuff to the director. If they're happy, I'm happy with it. And I, I try to I try to just say, you know, I want a wave file, I want a mono wave file and, and I want uh, your underscore to be a certain type of instrument so that it doesn't compete with the dialogue. But after that, it's all, you, you know, after I've kind of given just some basic requirements that I need, they're off to the races and they do their own thing. And a lot of times I don't hear that music till right before Tech Sunday and it's finished form. That's the hard part for me. I prefer to have it a couple weeks in advance. I'd love to have the director use it in rehearsals. We're just not there yet, but we'll get there. Right. Yeah. Right. One of the things I talked about with Tim was, and maybe this is the way theater is going, I'd like to get your opinion on this, is that we're used to when we see movies and when we see television shows to have those kind of soundscapes. Mm Mm-hmm. Underneath, you know, whether it's music or, you know, some kind of a sound effects bed or something like that. And theater hasn't necessarily caught up to that yet. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's it's interesting that we're so used to it with those with the with those media, but when we go to see something live, that um, sound designers maybe aren't utilizing it as much. What What is your opinion on the use of soundscapes in, in a live venue, in a live performance I love, venue? I love, 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 love creating soundscapes. But it creates a lot more work for me because then I have to mic every actor. Okay. Because in a 500-seat house, it's really not fair to put the same pressure of volume at the front seat and the back seat and then expect the actor to compete with that. Sure. So that's why I'll ask the composer, you know, uh, you know, no really high pitched instruments, no pizzicato plucks, you know, it's gotta be something really smooth, you know, and relaxed as Mm -hmm. far as if it's music as a soundscape. So, uh, I love doing it. I, I do it whenever I can get away with it. The hardest part for me, I think is, is like putting music under underneath the scene because I instinctively know that I want 
a piece of music underneath the dialogue. And sometimes the hard part for me is because I'm not in rehearsal, I'm not in the rehearsal process night after night after night. I don't always know where I want to sneak it in and, and, and where to take it out, you know? And, and so that's the awkward part for me is what I really would love to do is be on a show and be on that show until it opens. But that's not the way it works. I'm I'm on a show until it opens and I don't look at your show until I'm done with the show ahead of you. And by that time, everything's blocked and they're they're doing their thing. I can come in and maybe get one run through in like there'd be one night where they're doing a full run through that I can sit through and kind of mark my book up. And then I try things and I throw a lot of things away. It's like, oh, that was terrible. Let's just get rid of that. <laughs> Do you have a time during the rehearsal process? I mean, I know you have production meetings and things like that, but do you have a time when you get a chance to sit down with the director to throw some sound cues at them, or or does all of that happen cast a stage or text Sunday? It depends. Um, it depends on how the requirement of sound, of sound effects is in from the get go. And so a lot of times it depends on the director's schedule and my schedule. It's like, I would love to meet with you, but I've got this show breathing down my neck and I can't, I don't have any time to preview this stuff for you. We do share files quite a bit through Dropbox. <laughs> you know, what do you think of this? Yeah, we'll give it a shot. You know, we'll know until we see it. So a lot of times for me, uh, the auditioning of sound effects and soundscapes happens on Tech Sunday and First Dress. Get a couple of cracks at it to make it right. And you just keep your fingers crossed and hope it works. Because, there, you know, like I say, in a perfect world, I would love to be sitting with the composer in your rehearsal and trying things as you're, as you're doing the scene that I think needs underscore. And getting the director's feedback immediately, going back to the drawing table, tweaking it, fixing it, making it perfect, trying it again in the rehearsal. Mm -hmm. But the the best the best that I can do is I can put the I've put the entire sound effects and music log on a playback laptop, and I turn it over to the stage manager, and I say, "Will you run these during rehearsal? And let me know what's going on." Well, at least you have that. What? Technical skills, if if you have somebody that's coming in or that's thinking about wanting to be a sound designer, mm, yeah, what is the, the skill set you need to have? What is the communication set you need to have for somebody who's looking to get into sound design? Well, in my experience at the Playhouse, because that's all I have to draw from, sure, is that great creativity and ideas won't get you in the door. You also have to be an engineer. So if you can't patch the show, if you can't get into a Yamaha CL5 mixer and go through all the incredible amounts of layers of programming that you have to do on that console just to turn it on and make it work for the show, then you you don't get a shot here because you have to, you have to be able to just do everything. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody gets to sit down and say, here's my design and then give the engineer notes or the sound op notes or the sound engineer notes or the programmer notes. You have, you're the sound designer. 
you're the train, you're, you know, the personnel trainer, you're the engineer, you have to do it all. And we only have one, like, um, in the sound and lighting world, everybody's like Ford Chevy, right? It's like, oh, you have a Yamaha sound desk? Oh, God, how can you work with that? Well, it's what we have. <laughs> it's a fantastic sound desk. I'm sorry you don't know it. Most time people object to the type of brand you have is just because they aren't familiar with it, right? I'm the same way with PCs and Macs. I, I use Macs as, as little as possible. I only know enough about a Mac to do what I need to do for that show. I don't know all the ins and outs, so I kind of shy away from that, right? So, you know, you have to have all these technical skills, it seems like. You have to almost be an IT person now because everything is is um, network-based, right? So I have a I have this sound desk that can run 72 channels of audio, and it all runs on one Cat5 network cable, right? You have to go out and be able to do all the pieces that it talks to. I'll need their own IP address and firmware and software updates. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> did I answer your question? You did. Okay. Right. Well, and it's you know, and, and what's funny about that is you know when you juxtapose it with the old reel to reel, and what you used to do with that, it's like with computers and things like that. You know, people think it's easier, and sometimes it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just it, there's a there's they're so feature rich, and they allow you to do so many things, but it doesn't really save you any time really you know how it goes when you sit at a computer i can spend an hour looking at fonts yes <laughs> i agree <laughs> right? i agree there's so many options and so we do a real uh it's a people scoff at it but we're super we run a formula here we know exactly how much time we have we know exactly how much money we have we know exactly how much manpower and rehearsal hours we have right so this is the way it's going to be work inside this framework and so the, the console is all set up a certain way, which drives sound mixers crazy because they have their own way they like to lay out mixers. It's like, if you change the configuration of my mixer, I will have to kill you. I won't want to, but what <laughs> choice would you have given me? Because now you've created a ton of work for me. I'll put it, restore it and put it back, right? Right. So that's uh, that's the that's un that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is because the pace here is really fast well when you have 10 shows 10 11 shows that you're doing mm -hmm. uh, not including christmas carol it has to be a well-oiled machine and so things have to be the way they are right i i totally understand that what would you say was the most complex show sound design wise that you've done in your time here and maybe there's more than one mm, yeah well, they all have to fit in the formula, right? So usually the most complex, most difficult ones are the first one with a new piece of equipment. Uh, it's super stressful. You get in, a, we got in a new sound desk for Rock of Ages. It just happened to hit, the delivery time happened to hit right before that show. And so can you get that thing unboxed and learn how to use it and all of its features and get it configured to work with the equipment that you already have before Tech Sunday hits, right? Nobody wants to tell the director, hey, I failed, right? That's just not an option. 
So those are the most stressful, most complex things to do is to integrate new, to jump outside of our framework and bring something new in and try to make it work inside the machine without the gears just totally destroying everything. And Rock of Ages, that's, you know, in some ways, you know, it's a rock concert on stage, but then at the, you know, but then at the same time, was it that much more, and of course you just said, because of having to get the new equipment up and running, but, you know, when I think of like yesterday and today and the Buddy Holly story, mm-hmm. and, and those are more rock concert type shows, sure. uh, the difference with setting that up than a regular musical yeah at the end of the day rock of ages is still musical theater and so the sound designer for the show tim burkhart he and i have worked together here for 32 years or 31 years or something like that he does all the musical sound reinforcement when the musical comes in and what is sound reinforcement Uh, that would be all the miking of the show and the band and the pit Okay. Right. And I I would, then I layer my sound effects on top of his design and I'm assisting Jim Ophuse on lighting. All right. So So, you're really not doing much. (laughs) (laughs) It's a piece of cake, you know, give me a cup of coffee and I'll be fine. So the, the cool thing about Burkhardt is, is that he mixed rock shows in his youth and toured with bands. So he also went to Simpson College and studied theater. So he's got both those backgrounds. So when he gets a show like that, he's like, oh, my goodness, this is great. I'm going to go back to my rock and roll roots. So he can, you know, he can give you the best of both of those worlds. And that's just for me as the resident sound designer to have that kind of guy sitting next to me is just great comfort because you know it's going to be handled no matter what they throw at him and so we have to you know we have to have a certain kind of microphone hanging on that actor's face that can give you the loud rock amplification without feeding back and it's just a real careful juggling act to do that is it and i'll pause here the microphones that you used for rock of ages Different than the microphones you use for, say, like a Bridges of Madison County? Yeah. Yeah. If you look really close at the PR photos, you'll notice that the microphones are on a a wire, a real tiny wire boom that come down from their ear, down their jawline. Stop about maybe a three quarters of an inch to an inch from the corner of their mouth. And just that difference of being from the corner of the mouth or up over the ear or up on their forehead is several decibels of amplification that you can get before feedback. Okay. And so it's a different style of microphone. It might be the same brand from the same company, but it might be directional instead of omnidirectional, and it's on a boom rather than hidden up over their ear or hiding under their wig line right up at the top of their forehead. So, yeah. It's a, it's amazing how simple and yet complex <laughs> People would not believe what we go through to put a microphone on a person and make it sound good. Sure. I mean, I know it's... Go through the process of what that is like. It must seem easy, and we want it to look easy to the actors, because we don't want to freak out the actors either, you know? Plug your ears with our With our problems, with our sound problems. But we are back there asking them, please, 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 when you put your microphone on every night, you know, it's... we, we want the same end. We don't, you know, it can't be up by your eye or down the middle cheek. It's got to be in the same spot. 
every night so that the sound that we run through the mixer presets are the same every night. And if you move it an inch or two up or down, it makes a huge difference in the sound in the house. And so we beg them to help us in that way. And our dressers, Sarah Schnitzer, she's really good at hiding microphones and super great at taping them so they don't fall or, you know, we, a lot of people sweat and they can sweat the, the mic out or they can sweat the tape off. And then the next thing you know, the mic's down inside their collar. We rely on costumes to help us a great deal with hiding the pack, making sure the pack is secured on their body, someplace where it's not going to get beat up and collect sweat and where the microphone is and how it's taped on so it looks good. Uh, it's a huge, huge effort. A lot of people. How do you keep someone from sweating out a mic? And what does that mean? I know what it means, but <laughs> yeah. for people out there who may not know what right. that is. Well, the mic element, uh, you think of a microphone on a stand, like a great big ball on the end of a handle, right? Well, the, uh, this is a miniature version of that that's maybe an eighth of an inch in diameter. And so on a boom mic, if you sweat, the, the sweat will actually run down the boom and then get on the capsule at the end. And once the water gets inside that little miniature diaphragm, it's game over. So you have to keep that dry. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't knock the mic out for that evening's performance, then the salt eventually, like, you know, when you wear a ball hat and you're working outside and you get the big white sweat ring around your head or on your T-shirt or whatever, that that will ruin the mic also over a period of time. So we, we go through a great deal of effort to keep those microphones dry. And we a lot of times use like latex, like a latex condom that's made specifically for sweat protection. It's not safe for sex. I always tell everybody, don't, don't grab a handful of these. And you'll be really sorry. But we buy them, you know, boxes of 500, and then we, we put them over the microphone like a little raincoat, right? Over and the microphone over itself, the, not over the, the, over the pack? Over the pack. Then on the end of the microphone, let's say we're spraying blood at an actor in um, Evil Dead, Evil Dead the musical, or you just have a really sweaty guy, and I won't name names, but we have some notorious sweaters. We then take a small piece of that and we wrap it over the little tiny mic element, and then with some thread, we just tie a little knot on it, and that. I lost a bet on that because uh, the guy I work with, Tim Burkhart, said, this is how we're going to do it. And I said, there's absolutely no way that's going to work. It's like a drum, like a drum skin, like, you know, stretched over the top of this tiny little mic element. And I'll be darned, we went all of Evil Dead without losing a microphone to, you know, the bloodbath that happened every night. And there was a lot of blood. Yeah, there was. <laughs> So anyhow, that's we that's how we protect those microphones. And then sometimes, I mean, there, there's like a lot of people that just what for whatever reason, they don't even sweat. So we don't have to do anything to their microphone whatsoever. Well, and I don't you you obviously know what you're doing, because I rarely I can't even think of an instance 
hear where I've heard a mic crackle. And, and, and I'm sure it mm-hmm. probably happens from time to time. But I mean, I, rarely have I heard it where right. I've heard it in other places where, and I know a lot of that is from sweat or the microphone has slipped or, sure. or what, ha- you know, or what Air, have you. Earrings. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, electricity it's, from the costume. And there's a lot of things that'll make a, a mic crackle. And it always happens on preview night when yeah. the reviewer is there, right? Exactly. And the reviewer just has to say something yes. about it. When it does happen, it, it does seem to get mentioned, mm-hmm. but I just read a review, uh, very well written on Broadway World, I guess, about Bridges. And the reviewer was describing the feeling of what was coming out of the pit and the feeling of every clear note that she heard. You know, she was describing how you know, she could feel it in her hair. And I'm thinking, hey, you're talking about sound. Right. Exactly. And so we only seem to get mentioned when when it's something bad. It's, right. it's discouraged. That's discouraging at times. But mm-hmm. after all these years, I I don't. You know, it used to really it used to really bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. It's just part of the job. Now, and that was interesting. A point you just brought up. So, what is the process to amplify? the pit during a musical and striking that balance between the musicians and uh, and the singers. Right. Because it's not because it's not easy. It's you not know, easy, it's not uh, easy to to strike a balance and and you you you, you have Monday, so you have a Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you have three cracks, two and a half hours on three evenings to get it right. And you have to, what you're doing or what we're doing in the formula that I talked about is, is we're, we're programming scenes that, so when we get to this part on the, in the script, you push the button and different microphones come up at different levels, different pit levels, different actor levels. Okay. So it all is done by pushing a button as opposed to having the person who's running sound move sliders up and down with the, with like bringing the microphone up or bringing, yes. Okay. So. What do you do? There's different levels of volunteers. There are people who can then bring the preset. The faders all fly into place. These are the faders that are involved in this. And now I can manipulate them for this scene. Then you're taking liberty with the design, right? So we kind of prefer that you just run the preset so that we have consistency every night and not show A on Bob's (laughs) night and show B on Joe's night, right? So. There, there are shows like Bridges where you do sometimes wish, I wished I was the sound operator and I wished I was just mixing this every night because you could then go and take it to another level of design, if you will, and really crush it. But that's that's not the way it is. So we, we, we have that limited rehearsal time. We lock in those levels as best we can. And sometimes, yeah, and I don't always agree with what happens out on stage. Sometimes I think the mics are too loud and too in your face. Sometimes I think the pit is overwhelming. But Bridges is the most beautiful sound mix that I can remember here. It, it's such a great experience and it's a combination of sound mixing genius artistic genius from the directors and the music director the actors are amazing and so like when when the voices and these certain instruments are coming out of the pit in the house playhouse is not acoustically perfect 
But this show is as good as it gets. It's just beautiful. Just beautiful. And then we get to hear two different sets of people do the opening well, the leads, you know. And, and I was going to ask you about that. So since you have two sets of lead actors for Bridges, do you have two sets of cues? So, yeah. so when it's Mackenzie and James, they have like one, you know, like it's like plot A. And then when it's, you know, when it's Tom and Angie, it's mm-hmm. plot B. Or- so it's the, it's the same show every night. Mm-hmm. And if it's Mackenzie and James, the other couple's microphones are coming up in the queue, even though they're not even in the building. Oh, okay. But for that evening, they're out of patch. Okay. So you will see Angie's mic pop up while Mackenzie is singing, but it's not doing anything. In fact, her transmitter is backstage and it doesn't even have batteries in it. So both couples' microphones are programmed into every scene for the show. Fascinating. It's it's just that you only hear the pair that are actually on stage. So that is fascinating. Yeah. Well, and then that's good because then it it's not really double the work then. Right. It, just it, by having them all in there at right. the same time, you just you just unplug it. Right. And the challenge, of course, was is that is that Tim had, you know, we talked about the two or three or four cracks that you have before you get an audience mm-hmm. at rehearsals and programming. So he really only had half that amount of time with each couple. Right. Right. Because we didn't extend the tech week. Right. Right. Know. And, and you didn't, and you didn't run the show twice every night to give no, each of them a crack. We didn't, at. and these couples, and maybe they would tell you different. Maybe they would say, "Oh, we're, you know, we're our nerves were on edge, and we didn't know if we were going to make it." But to us in the house, they looked. It looked effortless to them. I know it wasn't, I know, but I'm just saying they sound amazing. They did an amazing job with the little bit of time that they had on stage with with full orchestra and full costumes and mm-hmm. learning how to make sure they aren't getting run over by a kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> or a phone booth. Or a phone booth, right. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was quite the experience. So I'm sorry, because I, I got you off track a little bit. So going back to how do you balance out what all is involved with making the pit sound? I mean, okay. um, so, so Bogus arranges the pit the way he needs it to be. He likes to have the drummer right to his right-hand side. And we like the drummer to be as far off to the right as we possibly can so that he's not coming right up through that giant opening where where you can see Bogus's arms and, mm-hmm. and head sticking out of the pit. Mm-hmm. So for balance, we compromise on where instruments sit in that orchestra pit and do you have any kind of sound wall for the percussion i don't know what you call it but you know right. the plexiglass when they're, the playhouse doesn't own the plexiglass wall that you're talking about you, you you've seen it uh billy's uh, drummer uses it uh, in the howard drew quite a bit mm-hmm. that's the only time i've seen it used here no, we don't. And, but we, we do mic the drums. And okay. so then we have some beautiful studio mics hanging over the string so we can pull up the mandolin or the cello or this big, beautiful stand-up bass that's coming out of the pit. The end note of that, end of Act One in the balcony is amazing. It's, a, it's this long, drawn-out bow bass note. And uh, it's just beautiful. But anyway, so he, he kind of designs where he wants people and because, you know, the drummer's got to hear the piano and he's got to hear the drum and the people on stage have to hear the piano. So we're we're sending the piano up to the stage 
And if the orchestrations don't call for piano, then we have to send maybe the guitar or the mandolin or whatever it is that an actor needs to, to stay with the music or on pitch or whatever mm-hmm. the word terms are. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So we, and then we can also take those microphones and then send them to the house PA. And so we want to control the amount going to the stage because we don't want to hear the orchestra through their microphones. Mm-hmm. But they want to hear the orchestra as loud as they possibly can hear it, right? They they need it. They're always asking for more and more and more. And we can only give them as much as we can until things start squealing, mm-hmm. right? And, then, and I'm sure you have monitors on the sides and stuff like that to help them out. There's monitors uh, on stage left and stage right from downstage to upstage that broadcast across left to right. And then we let certain parts of the orchestral mix come out to the house at certain times, right? Uh, There's times when it just, the mics are on, they're broadcasting to the stage, but they're not coming out to us in the theater. And if they are, it's in a really small, subtle way. Then there's times when there's a big swell and we really want to make, you know, a statement and a big impact from the orchestra. Then we just cut loose and it's just glorious. When you have offstage singing that occurs mm-hmm. is it mainly through the wireless mics or do you have um hanging mics or standalone mics back there as well um until recently we used hanging mics backstage they would all kind of gather around and now we use their wireless mics because almost everybody's wearing a wireless mics mic these days even the even the chorus yeah. or the ensemble mm-hmm. and that makes the and, and listen for it in bridges. That makes the offstage miking so much better for the mix because we can we can then regulate uh, that guy that's really loud, right? We can and we can or we can accent a certain part mm-hmm. of of that group of that ensemble, mm-hmm. and they can be stage left and stage right because <laughs> they're getting their costume changed, yeah. right? So it's really helped us quite a bit to go to mixing the backstage singing through the wireless mics. Mm-hmm. Giving away all the secrets. <laughs> I know what I'm asking you. For. <laughs> I know what I'm asking you for your, all your trade secrets. Is there a show that you would love to design sound for? Oh wow! Oh, that's a tough question. I know it's like, it's kind of like a bucket like a bucket list. Yeah show that you would you know right. if you if you had like if you could like get in Kimberly's ear and say yeah. put this on the season I would love to design it everyone now's your yeah. shot everyone <laughs> will groan but I would love a crack at the fantastics on main stage uh that would be one that just comes right off the top of my head but other than that I haven't thought about it. I would really need some time to think about that oh sure and it would be like a top five list I imagine once mm-hmm. I was done mm-hmm. how about you as far as like directing yeah. or, you know, I, you know, it's funny because the one show that I always wanted to direct, um, and, and this was even before I even thought about being a director was I always just kind of had this vision for Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm. And actually I know the playhouse had, you know, has done it within the past few years. And I saw it and I actually had a chance to do it over at Chanticleer a number of years ago. Mm. And that was the only one really, the only other one that I would love a crack at would be chess. Oh yeah. I would love to do chess that would be there's sound design too yeah that's that's one that just that would be that would be really cool from a sound design perspective and just even from a directing 
perspective. So can really put it on the list. <laughs> I would love to work with John Jablisco. We're going to do it together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so, yeah, but I mean uh, that, you know, that's, that's the only one, but I tend to find my greatest shows, whether it's directing or performing in, I find that it becomes a bucket list role when I'm doing it. Yeah. You know, and then I sit there and go, Oh, it's a bucket list role. And I didn't know I needed the bucket. You know, right. <laughs> you find out yeah. during the process. It, so. Yeah. And I would have to, I have to say it's gotta be on the main stage because doing a musical in the Howard Drew is way too difficult. And the room has got hard maple floors. It's got concrete walls and it's got a steel roof. And so you're spending most of your time fixing and correcting and then you're not designing. You're sure. You're, well, and, and let's take a moment to talk about that because I've, and of course I've seen a number of musicals that have been done in the Howard Drew. And so oftentimes, you know, I know configurations change and I don't know how, the decision is made how you configure, you know, the space in there. I mean, I think it was funny when I came and saw Of Mice and Men, I had no idea that this is where the booth was because I'd never seen it. Right. And then I, I think you were here that night because the light came on all and all of a sudden, what is that? I'm like, oh, that's where the booth is. I never knew where it was in Howard Drew. So, but I know the configuration is different. And sometimes, you know, you have the musicians that are up here, like in front of the booth. And then for Fun Home, you know, was over on on the other side. Right. And so can you explain to me? I mean, and it goes back to how difficult it is when the when the band is in different places. Mm -hmm. How is that decision made and how how much effort do you have to put into yeah. rearranging things? All right. The this the decision the lion's share of the time comes from the set designer. Okay, it's like flat, you know. Plus, I want this I want this brick wall to be here, and the orchestra is another brick wall that I'm going to put over here. So it's like part of their big uh, overall visual concept of where the orchestra is, not about where it's going to sound the best for the show. Okay, right. Yeah. And so what I try to do is I say. Oh, please, when you're designing the orchestra surrounds and, you know, a lot of times it's there's if they're like a scenic piece, they're yes. surrounded by beautiful balustrades and railings and, and whatever. It's like, can you build it so that we can, you know, stop some of that sound from bouncing off the ceiling and, and, and just killing that half of the room for the audience that's sitting next to them. Right. And. Sometimes you get that, and sometimes you're doing it on Tech Week, you know, tiptoeing around everyone's super expensive instrument, stuffing insulation in, you know, black velour pillows, and and trying anything you can to just knock down a little bit of the reflective qualities that are going to be flying off those instruments. And you know, you you need a certain amount of energy to play an instrument, I would mm -hmm. imagine. So mm -hmm. they probably get super tired of me saying you're too loud, you're too loud, you're too, I can't hear, you know. Do you mic the musicians in the Howard Drew like you do on the main stage? Well, we do, but, you know, most of the time you probably are only going to hear them in the overture. And, you know, when there's when when it's a scene change or a transition or something mm -hmm. like that. But we don't really need to mic them in that room. Because it's it's it, a small enough space. Yeah. it's and, and it's it can get loud and noisy in there. Mm hmm. The sound just bounces everywhere. Mm -hmm. right? So the reflection 
if if you could put if if we could put somehow put the orchestra in the room that you and I are sitting in mm-hmm. and mic everything and mix Just, it down through the PA right. like we're mixing a CD or something yeah and and then and and then we'd have complete and total control uh, you would have the most beautiful lush uh, orchestrations mm-hmm. playing with these beautiful voices in the theater and you would never have the frustration of not being able to hear the singers mm-hmm. and you know that's probably something that happens all over the place cuz i know you know we used to talk when snap was you know in the space on 33rd in california and i don't know if you were ever in there but mm-hmm. you know we would we would talk about it. and that's a much smaller space than the Howard Drew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would do musicals in there. And we used to always talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could put the band in the basement and mm-hmm. figure out a way of mixing them and putting them up on, you know, on the stage. One, because it would give us more room to perform. Sure. But two, you know, you can only do so much with sound panels. And it's, True. you know, and it's still going to you know, come in. So I, I completely understand. Like uh, for Caroline or change, even though they were in the room, I still had to have video for the conductor to see the show. Do you have to do that a lot? I've had, I've done it three or four times. Also not a lot because I don't, I really don't want to add the video Mm -hmm. hat to my job description. Right. Got enough going on. If, if you have to, make your conductor look at a video monitor, then I, I just, to me, it's like, it's a fail of design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just have to say it, you know? Mm-hmm. And when you have to have the conductor on a flat screen TV, hanging off the balcony railing so that the actors can see the conductor, yeah. I just don't like doing that. That was the one thing when I used to work for Opera Omaha, that was the one thing that absolutely floored me. The very first time I saw it was when, you know, when it was getting toward tech Sunday and, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, they've got the, televisions in the court, you know, the giant televisions in the corner that are blocked off with the the black masking. So the audience can't see it. I'm like, what's that for? Then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, Hey, Hal, I had no idea. And they did it for every, every single one. I'm like, what the actors can't figure out their own notes. But yeah, but you know, I get it. I get it too. I mean, it's just like you, we always just do what we have to do to get that show up and running and, and, and have it run smooth. And if that means video, so be it. Do I want to do it? No. Am I going to be happy about it? Certainly not. I, I think it's distracting to see someone wagging their arms on a TV in a three-quarter yeah. round thrust situation. What do you think on any given show is the biggest challenge when you when you work on a play? Well, for me, the biggest challenge is always communication, right? So you you somebody has gone through the trouble of trying to figure out a design. And then they get the, the, the yes as the answer. And then they hand it to dozens of people to reinterpret, right? And so for years and years, I had a great shorthand with Carl Beck mm-hmm. and Susie Collins. I knew exactly if I interpreted something in my own way, if they, would, if they were going to like it or not. Right. But I didn't have to ask them. Right. right. So I'm starting to get that with Kimberly. Mm-hmm. Right. Kimberly mm-hmm. and I have done a couple shows together now. We have not done a lot of shows together. Right. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Especially when she does musicals, I'm really assisting Jim. Mm-hmm. She and I aren't working together, doing notes, trying to change things. You know. Right. She's working with Jim. She's working with Bogus. She's working with Burkhart. So uh, it's not every show that she does that she and I get to sit down and do things together. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take time. 
you know, same with the blend, you know, exactly. some shows with him and mm-hmm. we're getting better together. Right. And so hopefully things will stay the same for a little bit and we'll get really good at what we do together. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Okay. If you woke up tomorrow and something had happened in the world and there was no more theater, which could be a distinct possibility, you never know, what would you like to do? I would be a gardener at Lorenzen Gardens. I my whole my whole front and backyard is perennial garden. Yeah. Okay. And I tried volunteering down there, but my schedule just doesn't allow it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about it when you ask it because it's it's been on my mind for twenty years. You know, I just I was working down there when it was just rows of of roses in the middle of this cruddy field, and it's just like a dirt road going to this patch of flowers that they had. They hadn't built any buildings yet. They were still raising money for the place. But I think that is like theater down there. Mm-hmm. And they do incredible theater. Every time I see a display, and I can get a little harsh about their lighting. Sometimes they do a lot of LED lighting in that beautiful conservatory that they have. But everything they do there is top-notch and beautiful. Just so well done. Every everything I, I just love it there. That's where I want to be. What's your favorite genre of music? I'm kind of a forties Harry James big band guy. And that comes from my dad listening to records when I was a kid. Uh and I just love I love that era of music. I love the way that I've had conversations recently about why do the women sound so different when they sing in from the forties? What is that? Is that like parts they sing and how they were their voices mixed in? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. why do like when when those women sing they sound different than any other? You can just say it, that's from the 40s, right? Right, right. Uh, I love man, I love that. So I love that. I I don't. My mom constantly listened to opera music. I'm just not an opera. I don't listen to too much opera, mm-hmm. but I do enjoy it. What's your favorite color? My favorite color has always been blue, and I don't know why. <laughs> I, you know, as a, you know, I've designed lights here too. Not, I haven't in years since sound has sort of taken over most of my spare time. Sound has grown and grown and grown and grown. And so when sound exploded here, then my light designing days were over. But, you know, color is such a powerful stimulant to the mm-hmm. eye. And we use it in the theater all the time to say, this is how we want you to feel right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and so why the, you know, what is the thing about blue with me? I should be able to figure this out. Right. <laughs> I work with color all the time, but I don't know why. I just love it. I love all shades of blue. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm a big fan of blue myself. Lighting is the one class that when I was in college that I wanted to take, and I it always interfered with my acting classes, so I never, I never could take it. But I I do love a good, subtle lighting design. There's a wonderful moment, in and there's probably more than one, but the right at the beginning of of Mice and Men, uh, where Lenny and George are talking, and all of a sudden you just realize that the sun is going down. Mm. You know, and and you don't perceive it. I mean, that's the beauty of a long, long light is that you don't perceive it until all of a sudden you've been watching the scene for five minutes and you're like, it's gotten darker. You know, and maybe most people don't notice it. I tend to notice things like that because I enjoy lighting design so much. But I just I love a good slow like you. No doubt. I just I really do. 
Is there a historical figure from days gone by that you would like to meet if you had the opportunity? Mm, yeah, you know, we just did the mountaintop. The show was really not about the iconic man. It mm-hmm. was just about the guy that he right, was. He's right. just a guy. Yeah. You know? And so in the research of King, you know, I read so many interesting things. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to sit down? He was so young. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how, how are you, how are you, how are you filled with that much wisdom mm-hmm. and grace and, and power uh, of speaking at his age? Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a guy that would be great. I would love to talk to, to that guy for sure. And that's just something that comes off the top. Just be, you know, all the stuff, all the great quotes and all the great learning that I've done has come from shows. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. And so when we, when we as theaters are like, oh, well, if your kid's in theater, blah, 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 he'll have a better math score. And, and we have to quantify everything. Right. So so that you can go to somebody and say, look, at we've measured the good we've done and that's why you should support the arts. It's like, how about it just makes you a smarter, better person? <laughs> you know, it does. It, it does. Really, it does. It makes you smarter, happier and healthier. And forget all the rest of the, the measurables. You know, I understand, we, you know, why everything has to be counted and quantified and justified and all that. You know, right. I get it. But. And that's just like, for me, theater doesn't mean, I never have left the theater going, man, I'm going to go home and do some algebra tonight. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just went to see some, I just saw the symphony or I just saw the theater and now I'm better at math. Right. Yeah. Maybe if you saw proof, you'd want to go home and do more math. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> ah, Kimberly, we should do proof. Do proof. Right. We need more math in our lives. Going back for a moment to Lawrence and Gardens, what's your favorite flower? Oh, well, I'm kind of a sucker for amaryllis. You know what those are? They're like this really waxy, green, stocky type leaf. And I really do like calla lilies a lot. Mm. Uh, love, they don't do a lot of orchids down there, but I've been to other uh, gardens where they have like whole rooms full of walls and walls of orchids. I love orchids. And, you know, I... The, the thing about flowers and, and nature is like, like the color combinations are always perfect, aren't they? Nothing, nothing ever doesn't go together or clash, right? Right. So I just, you know, I love a good rose too. Like a rose that looks good and smells good. John Jibalisco, thank you so much. Well, thanks. I'll do this again. We should have a two-parter. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's theater talking.